Well, if you have been following along, you will know that we are uh, beginning this morning a, a series through the Lord's Prayer, found in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 9 to 13. This morning, however, we will look uh, specifically at chapter 6, verses 9, and uh, the first half of verse 10. And you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, last week we had a, a Paul Burkhouse filled in the pulpit uh, but a couple of weeks ago, we uh, introduced this section, uh, looking at verses 5 to 8. And we were given an example, two examples, in fact, of how not to pray. And so this morning, as the Lord Jesus continues his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches his disciples how to pray. So I ask you to turn to your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. I will read... Uh, verses 9 through 13 this morning. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. And he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us alone in our ignorance. That you have not allowed us, O oh Lord, to flounder as we come, desire to come in prayer to you. You have taught us, O oh Lord, how to pray. You have given us a pattern in these words of the Lord Jesus. You've given us instruction. And we pray, dear Lord, that your word would be used this morning to enrich our prayer lives, to call us, O oh Lord, to renewed repentance and faith in you, and to bow down humbly before you, seeking your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, if I were to ask you how many of you could recite the Lord's Prayer from memory, I imagine that the vast majority of you, probably all of you, would be able to raise your hands. This passage is one of the most well-known passages in all of, the, all of Scripture. Aside possibly from John 3.16, people know these verses very, very well. And even outside of Christianity, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, other religions have studied this prayer. They've looked at it. And some have even said, you know, this prayer isn't even a Christian prayer. It's not necessary for me to believe in Jesus Christ in order to pray this prayer. Now, in the preceding verses, as we've already mentioned, Jesus taught his disciples how not to pray. He said, don't pray like the hypocrites who go out onto the street corners and their desires to be seen, their desires to receive the glory and praise of other people. He said, don't pray like the pagans, the heathens, the Gentiles who use mindless, repetitious phrases, hoping to wear their gods down. The false hope that these false gods hear them. Instead, Jesus says, pray then like this. Now it should be noted right off uh, the outset here that in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, you can turn to it in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, when you pray, say. It's a little bit different. And it's quite possible that Jesus taught his followers this prayer on multiple occasions. 
But he was not content with only one instance of teaching his disciples, his followers, how to pray. And so we see between these two passages, in our passage this morning, Jesus says, pray thus like this, or pray then like this. It's a pattern. In Luke, he says, when you pray, say. What does this tell us? It tells us that this prayer is appropriate to be used both as a pattern, as a basis for your personal prayers, but also it can be used, it may be used as a prayer itself. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't fall into the false notion that there's something uh, magical about reciting this prayer, that there's something special about these words, because then you fall into the trap of the pagans. This prayer, if it is prayed, when it is prayed, should be prayed with sincerity, out of your heart, with a desire that all of these petitions that you say, out of a desire that they will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But there's a reason why Jesus taught his disciples how to pray and, give, and gave them a pattern for their prayer. Well, what is it? Why did Jesus teach his disciples this? Well, in Luke, a disciple comes up to him and says, Lord, will you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? The reality is that we do not know how to pray to God. The reality is that we are sinful human beings. We're sinful men and women. We're sinful children. We have no idea how to approach God in prayer if he does not teach us, if he does not instruct us. John Calvin in his commentary on this passage said, No man will pray aright unless his lips and heart shall be directed by the heavenly master. Just as we can never know God without some voluntary condescension on his part, without God making himself known to us, without him coming down to our level, we cannot know God. Just as we can't know him without this, we cannot know how to approach him in prayer or in worship without him telling us how. Without God instructing us, we will fall into all manner of error. And all we have to do is, again, look at the preceding passage. Look at the examples that Jesus gave of the hypocrites, of the pagans, and how they contrived to pray. And Jesus says their prayers will not be heard because they're not praying to their Heavenly Father. We will contrive to pray for our own glory instead of God's. Or we will pray so that we can have our will done instead of God's when we're left to our own devices. But God in His mercy has given us a pattern. He's given us instruction for how to, pro to approach him in prayer. And so as we consider uh, these passages, this passage this morning, these words this morning, I would ask you to think about this. We can pray that our Father in heaven be glorified because we have been redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way we can pray this, in sincerity, is because we have been redeemed. We can pray that our Father in heaven be glorified because we have been redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at this prayer, and I hope that you will see it this morning as we go through verses 9 and half of verse 10, I hope you see that this prayer is designed, the instruction that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ is designed to cause us to bring His name glory. To bring His name glory. Well, as I've said this morning, we'll be looking at the words of address and the first two petitions of this prayer, verse 9 and verse 10a. And I've divided this section up into three, uh, three sections. Our glorious Father and King, verse 9a. Section 2, God's glorious name, verse 9b. 
And then third, God's glorious kingdom, verse 10a. So let's first look at uh, verse 9a, that very uh, beginning of verse 9, our glorious Father and King. Verse 9 says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus says, pray then like this. Or, or other, in other words, here is the pattern for your prayer. Here is how you ought to pattern your prayers. Now, the Lord's Prayer, as most of you are probably aware, uh, is divided into these words of address and into six or, or possibly seven petitions to the Lord. It all depends on how you count that last petition in verse 13, whether you divide it up into two separate position, uh, petitions or not. And the words of address are, Our Father in heaven. This is how we come to the Lord. We come to Him as, as our Father, our Father in heaven. And we touched on the idea of being the children of God a couple of weeks ago. Who is entitled to call God Father? Who has that right? Who has that privilege to call God Father? Now, some in the past have argued for uh, the fatherhood of God for all mankind. This is a, a, an idea in theology that's been around for close to 200 years. That God, by, by, uh, by right of his, his being creator of all human beings, by right of, of the common descent of, of men and women from Adam and Eve, that God is the father of all mankind. And there's a sense in which this is true. But then what do we do with the fact that Jesus calls the Pharisees the sons of their father, the devil? There was something that happened when Adam and Eve fell. There was a, there was a break in the relationship between God and man in the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so we must make a distinction here. So is this way of thinking, concern, uh, this thinking that everybody can legitimately call God Father, is it correct? Well, Scripture says no. It does not allow us to say this. And here's why. Primarily, the fatherhood, uh, fatherhood of God is based on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This is the primary uh, sense in which God is Father. God the Father and God the Son. Now in one sense, only Jesus may legitimately be called the Son of God. Only Jesus may call God the Father His Father. In one sense. Why is that? Because He is the eternally begotten Son of God. He never experienced a disconnect between his father, other than on the cross, when he died in our place, when he underwent the wrath that we deserved, he never, he never fell from God. He never fell in sin. So on what basis, then, does Jesus command his followers to pray our Father? How can Jesus say this? If he's the only one who can pray this way, how can he command us to pray this way? Well, Herman Ritterboss says, the idea of God's fatherhood is immediately connected with the thought of the remission of sins. These two are tied together so closely that the one cannot really be discussed apart from the other. The only way that you can think of God as your father is if your sins have been forgiven in Christ. You and I cannot think about God as our father without thinking about Jesus as our redeemer. Our right to call God father comes as a result of being adopted into God's family. And this only happens for those who believe in Jesus Christ. This is a privilege. This is a, a benefit of redemption. 
And it only happens for those who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, who've been united to him. And so Jesus is your brother. And when Jesus Christ comes before his heavenly father, he brings us with him. When you believe, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the spirit of adoption. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, by whom you call out, Abba, Father. Abba. Abba, that most intimate of Hebrew names for a son, for his dad. Jewish children still, in orthodox situations, still call their father Abba to this day. Jesus is saying you have a right and a privilege to use that name for Almighty God. This is a privilege that only the believer in Jesus Christ may have because we share in his inheritance as the adopted brothers and sisters of Christ. But we must uh, put a warning in here now. There's a danger here. As all of you who are children, which all of you are, so I hope you recognize this, as all of you know, children have a way of letting respect for their fathers diminish over time. Our earthly fathers all too easily become familiar to us. We don't respect them in the way that we should. And if we don't actively remind ourselves of our Heavenly Father's power and His majesty, we will begin to diminish His kingship over us, His authority, His power. We will begin to fail to respect Him in the way that we should. In the second part of the address, Jesus provides a corrective for this. He tells us that we are to pray our Father in heaven. God is our Father, but He is our Father in heaven. Heaven is where He hold, holds court. It is the, the seat of His authority and power. Heaven is the place where God sits in judgment over all creation, over men and women. This is where God sits in power. Heaven is where God sits enthroned as King, as our heavenly King. And as God's sons, we're invited to come boldly before Him in prayer. You may come before him boldly, without fear, without trembling, without a worry that you'll be smacked down, because you belong there. But we must do so remembering that he is our king, that he is the high king of heaven. And we would never dare approach a king irreverently or without respect. Calvin says, whenever we engage in prayer, there are two things to be considered. Both that we may have access to God and that we may rely upon Him with full and unshaken confidence. His fatherly love to us and His boundless power. You cannot forget these two things when you come before the Lord. He loves you because He is your Father. But He is also Almighty God. He is also Almighty God. And when you come holding these two things in tension when you recognize that he's your father and he is your king, then you will come boldly but reverently with a desire to be pleasing to your Lord in prayer and in worship. Well, let's look now at verse uh, 9b, the second half of verse 9, God's glorious name. After teaching us how to address our father in prayer, Jesus then moves into the petitions. Now, it's important to notice the way these requests are laid out. These requests, these uh, six or seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first three focus on God, don't they? They're all directed at God. 
Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. But what are the, the last three or the last four directed at? They're, they're, they're re- with regard to us, aren't they? They're with regard to us. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And so you see the structure of this prayer. And it has been pointed out in the past that the structure of the Lord's Prayer resembles the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first table of the law deals with our approach to God. The second table of the law deals with how we we live among other people. Our focus in prayer always needs to begin with God. Our primary concern must be His glory and not our own needs. How many of us, myself included, how many of us jump into prayer straight into petitions, begging the Lord for something. Well, the Lord reminds us, He's just said in the preceding passage, God already knows what you need. He already knows what you need before you bring it to Him in prayer. So it's important that we take time to pray with regard to God's glory, with regard to His name. And so the first of the petitions is, Hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed means to be sanctified or to be holy. Don't get it confused with this popular conception that gets inside your head because of the word Halloween. It's a corruption of the word. Hallowed means to be holy, to make holy. To hallow means to make holy, to honor as holy. As we pray this petition, our desire is that God's name will be glorified, will be made holy throughout all the earth. Hallowed be your name. That's our desire. The pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, Our Lord here is here teaching us to pray that the whole world may come to honor God like that. It is the expression of a burning and deep desire for the honor and glory of God. Our desire when we pray, hallowed be your name, is that God's name would be holy, would be made holy among all of the peoples of the earth. We want all people to glorify his name. And so this petition has an evangelistic nature, doesn't it? You pray this, and you're praying for God's glory. You're praying that people across the face of the earth will leap up in praise for their heavenly Father. That they will hallow His name, sanctify His name. And the only way that they can do that is if they embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And we all know that in the Bible there's a significance to names, don't we? When a significant event happens in the life of a person, his name is often changed. Just look at, at, uh, at Abraham. He was first known as Abram. Then he was changed to Abraham. Jacob to Isaac. Saul to Paul. These significant occurrences in their lives brought about a change because the name means something. Well, this is especially true with the names of God. God's name is God himself as revealed in his works. And through God's name, or names, because the Bible has many names for God, we learn about God himself. You see, his names, they teach us about his attributes. They teach us about his character. They teach us that he's a loving God, that he's a provider God, that he's almighty. And when you study the names of God, you begin to learn more and more about your heavenly Father. God's name teaches us about who he is. For instance, God's covenantal name, Yahweh, means I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. This name teaches us something, doesn't it? What does it teach us? It teaches us that God is eternally uh, self, uh, self-sustaining. 
self-existent. He doesn't need anything in order for himself to be existent. And when you think about that, when you think about God's name, what does it teach you? What does it teach you about yourself? You look at yourself and you realize you can't depend on, uh, you, you can't depend on yourself for anything. You are dependent on others. You can't live without water, without food. You can't live without human contact. We are utterly dependent. God is utterly independent. He doesn't need anything in order to exist. Ultimately, whether we admit it or not, we cannot live without God providentially sustaining us. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying that others would revere God's name by knowing who he is, by knowing what he has done for them, so that they would bow down and worship him. That is our desire when we pray this petition. Let's turn now and look at verse 10, the first half of verse 10, God's glorious kingdom. There's a very close connection between the first petition, hallowed be your name, and the second, your kingdom come. As God's name is made holy throughout all the earth, as people are added into the kingdom, added to those who reverently worship him, his kingdom comes. His kingdom comes in power. So as we're praying for God's name to be holy among all people, we're praying that God would build up his kingdom. And so hallowed be your name and your kingdom come, flow one into the other. But we've got to admit that God's kingdom is already here, isn't it? God's kingdom is here. Jesus brought it in when he walked on the earth. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of God is present. And we see this in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, where it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand now, because Jesus Christ has come. And he's walked the earth. Jesus ushered in the kingdom. When he walked the earth, he was the embodiment of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom continues today, doesn't it? It continues on. When God's people faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel, and new members are added to the kingdom, God's kingdom comes. It's built. It grows. But there's a future sense in which God's kingdom will come. That is when Jesus returns in glory. When he comes back and he will usher in the consummation of the kingdom and then the kingdom will be complete and whole. Only when Jesus returns. So your kingdom come is a prayer that God's kingdom will grow and God's kingdom will be consummated when Jesus Christ comes. When he comes at that second coming, the kingdom will be fully built. Well, as believers in Jesus Christ, we desire to see the kingdom of God grow. But what does this mean? What does it mean? What is is the kingdom of God? The visible kingdom of God is God's church on earth. When we pray that God's kingdom would come, we are praying that God would add to his church. That he would add to the number. Our desire is that the church would grow. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying that the stronghold of Satan will be defeated, that it will be crushed, that the shackles of Satan will be broken. 
And that sinful people will confess faith in Jesus Christ. That they will become a part of the visible church. But there's a more personal aspect to this prayer, isn't there? It's a prayer for God's glory, but it's also, there's something personal about it. When we pray this petition, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying that people we love, that our neighbors, that our friends, that our brothers and sisters who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we're praying that they will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will be added to the kingdom. This is a part of praying that the kingdom will come. Because the coming of the kingdom is both an aspect of salvation, but also of judgment. And we recognize that those outside the kingdom will be judged. That there is a a severe danger for those who are not a part of the kingdom of Christ. And so we need to uphold them in prayer. We need to pray that God's kingdom will come, and that God will add to his number. And we should pray specifically for people, specific people, Don't give up. Don't give up. Even though this petition is focused on God and His glory being magnified, His kingdom is being built. And it is not built without adding individuals, without adding persons, people, to the number. Well, Satan tries to build his kingdom in a different way. He tries to build his kingdom through tyranny and oppression. And his job is quite easy, quite frankly, because we're already enslaved to sin. We're already in shackles. Satan already claims those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But God uses much more gentle means, doesn't he? He uses what? Words. He uses the faithful proclamation of the gospel. He uses the power of his Holy Spirit to bind himself to that word, to draw sinners to himself. Pray that God's kingdom would come because God also uses prayer. Pray that relatives and friends and even strangers would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that they would be free from this oppressive reign of Satan and be welcomed into the eternal kingdom. Pray that God's name would be held in high esteem by all the peoples of the earth. Sincerely pray these petitions and trust that the Lord will hear you Because he is your heavenly father. And he loves to answer your prayer. Well, these first two petitions of the Lord's Prayer are, Hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. And as simple as these petitions are, as easy as they are for us to pray, as easy as they are to pray thoughtlessly, we are faced with a genuine challenge when we try to pray this prayer sincerely. Because we live in a world where most people's highest desire is their own glory. We live in a world where one of the highest rated television shows is American Idol, which is in many ways just a desire for people to become famous. They want their name to be spread throughout the earth. They want their name to be made holy. The challenge is, I want my kingdom to come, not God's. This is the challenge for sinful men and women. So we come to the Lord in prayer. But the Lord is calling you to submit your own desires, to to cast them out, and to desire what God desires. 
We are so quick to go to God with what we want and what we need, but Jesus reminds us when he teaches us to pray like this that God comes first. He must come first. It is not wrong to pray for our needs, but it is selfish to put our needs and our wants before the Lord's glory. The only way to pray a prayer like this with sincerity is by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to pray to your Father in heaven is by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Without faith in Christ, God is not your Father. And He will not hear your prayers. But all you must do, all you must do is repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God will become your heavenly Father. You can cry out to Him. Abba, Father. And He will hear you. You will be adopted by His Spirit into the family of God. You will be known by God as His Son, as His daughter, for all eternity. And nothing can pull you out of that relationship. Nothing can break the bonds of that family. Repent and believe and enter into God's kingdom, the household of faith. And remember to pray that God's name would be made holy through all the earth and that God's kingdom would come. Let us pray to God now. Our gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, dear Lord, for teaching us how to pray. We ask, dear Lord, that you would continue to instruct us through your word throughout this week and that you would gather us again next Lord's Day to worship your holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.